And we are about to open up God's Word from Colossians 1. And we're going to be looking at Colossians 1, 15 to 17, writing about Jesus being God himself. Colossians 1, 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This is the word of God. Hey everyone, um, great to be here with you guys today, great to see you all, um, especially if you are new this morning, you've been invited along. Uh, we love having you with us, my name is Jacob, if we haven't met before. And I've been looking forward to this series that we're getting into today for quite a while, because I really think that over the next uh, four weeks, we're going to be looking at a bunch of stuff which is really, really important. Um, and it's actually just in line with a lot of the questions that we as a society at large are asking. Johan Hari, uh, in his book Lost Connections, uh, which did the rounds on like the New York Times bestseller list and that kind of thing a couple of years ago, which is a book about depression, um, he asked the question, which I think many people are asking, which is, why is it that depression and anxiety are both skyrocketing in, in the whole of the Western world. And why is it the case that this phenomenon isn't just bad, but seemingly is getting worse, that despite taboos around mental health getting broken down and medication and treatment becoming more and more readily available, why does it seem that each generation is kind of struggling with depression and anxiety worse than any that have preceded it? And it's a complex question, of course, and there's all kinds of probably theories around that and influences around it, but the main thesis that Hari puts forward in his book, which I find reasonably compelling, is that many of the things that maybe previous generations took for granted, that they were connected to in everyday life, we are becoming increasingly disconnected from. And so he points to the causes such as disconnection from meaningful work or disconnection from meaningful values, disconnection from other people, disconnection from the natural world, disconnection from a hopeful or secure future, as some of the kind of meta-phenomenons that are existing that are causing young people just to feel empty or lost or depressed. And Hari isn't a religious person, but I think these ideas really resonate with religious and irreligious people alike. It seems to be a relatively common experience to feel like something is missing. David Foster Wallace, who was a really troubled writer, but who had a, a knack for articulating truth about the human condition, said, we're all lonely for something we don't know we're lonely for. How else do you explain the curious feeling that goes around feeling like we're missing somebody we've never even met? I think this feeling of something being lost even if we can't articulate easily what it is, has led to our society as a whole embarking on a collective search, a search to find what's missing. And together we're trying to find out which purchases, diets, relationships, careers, holidays, books, sleep patterns, medications, habits, styles, will be able to reconnect us with the thing that we've lost. And so to be really upfront with what we're trying to do here at City Light over the next four weeks, is we're trying to show how it is that the Christian worldview addresses this sense that something is missing. And it may, in fact, it may be that Christianity has within it the means of reconnecting us with what we truly need to live life to the full. And so we've kind of broken this down into these four topics, meaning, 
identity, connection, and wonder that we're going to be going through over the next four weeks. But today, we're starting with a big one that in many ways underpins the rest. Meaning. What is the meaning of life? Now, on one level, I'm aware it's almost kind of comical to try to answer that. We've just had bacon egg rolls, and now we're in here in a school hall, <laughs> meaning of life. Um, it's meant to be this kind of great unanswerable question. It's meant to be a question so big that no one could ever answer it, and here we are trying. And so I'm aware that it feels like a bit of a ridiculous task. In fact, even this week I came across a psychologist from the University of Toronto who's just finished a 50-part lecture series on our crisis of meaning. So it's, it's hard to be straightforward with it. But on another level, even though it seems like it's an unanswerable question, if we don't have an answer to it, life can become quickly unbearable. When we talk about meaning, we're talking about, I guess, these shared ideas of having a purpose and also having a significance. And to go through life without knowing what our purpose is or not even knowing whether we have any ultimate significance is distressing. We long to know that our life has some ultimate meaning. And when we don't know what that is, it pains us. Leo Tolstoy, the Russian writer back when Russia was still cool, wrote, the, wrote books like Anna Karenina and War and Peace. And late in his life, after, after having kind of global success, writing these things which are now considered to be classics, founding a successful magazine, he had a crisis of meaning. And he wrote this. He said, My question, which at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide, was the simplest of questions lying in the soul of every man from the foolish child to the wisest elder. It was a question without an answer to which one cannot live, as I had found by experience. It was, what will come of what I'm doing today or shall do tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? Differently expressed, the question is, why should I live? Why wish for anything or do anything? It can also be expressed thus, is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy. And this is the question that we're asking today. And, and my goal is to at least get to the tip of the iceberg as to kind of how the Bible and the Christian worldview seeks to answer that question. But before we get there, I think it's just helpful to, just, to look around and just think about what are the other alternate answers that are out there? What are, how would you kind of average person in Sydney today answer this question? And in, in thinking through this, I've tried to break it down into three categories that I think would capture most of the way we answer this question. These aren't mutually exclusive ideas. These are, are ways of thinking that I've found myself in multiple of these at the same time at different points in my life. And that is hedonism, humanism, and nihilism. So we're just going to go through those one by one. Hedonism is the idea that life is about happiness. It's about finding pleasure. It's about enjoying life. That our ultimate meaning is enjoy life as much as we can. And for, I think, a lot of people, that's kind of the, the, the answer we live by, even if we don't say it out loud, is how we kind of function in life. I've got a friend who is more open about his commitment to this philosophy than most. When he turned 18, he walked into a tattoo parlor. He lay face down on the tattooer's bench, and he got the words, enjoy life, tattooed in Times New Roman font, about 30 centimeters, 10 centimeters across his back. Now, I've... I've I was meaning to text him this week and ask if he regrets it, but I didn't get around to it. So I don't know if he does, but as far as I can work out, he's tried to live as true to these words as possible for the last 14 or so years. And, it, and it's changed over the years. When he was 18, early 20s, enjoy life meant living for the weekend, drinking, partying, just living up the experiences. 
In his mid-twenties, it shifted and it started being more about travel, establishing a career, building up a bit of wealth. And now that he's in his thirties, enjoy life means buy a home. He's got married, having a kid. But the, throughout all these stages, the, the drive that is there is to enjoy life. That is what he believes life is about, and I think many are in that boat. And on one level, that's like super fair enough, right? Because why wouldn't you want to be happy? There's, there's nothing wrong with being happy. It actually feels good to be happy. That's kind of how it works. But the issue with it is that it doesn't, or the, maybe the question with that approach is, does it satisfy our search for meaning? And I think there's a couple of issues with it. Firstly, it's just the problem of suffering. If your meaning is found in enjoying life, being comfortable, being happy, having some pleasures, then suffering, when it comes along, which it will, in sickness or in loss, or even in a COVID lockdown that we've experienced, it means that we're, in that moment, not just being robbed of our happiness, but we're being robbed of our meaning. If the meaning of life is to enjoy life, it means that large kind of portions of this world, those who are living in poverty, those who are living in, in war-torn areas, who don't have the privileged means of just being comfortable, it means that then they, they can't achieve meaning. And I think we all know intrinsically, right, that like a soldier right now in Ukraine, even if they don't have the means of enjoyment at their disposal, they're certainly not lacking in meaning or purpose. But more than that, like Jez alluded to before, the other reason we know that comes up short is we can probably all think of people who have, in one sense, achieved this. They've got the good job, they've got the good home, they get to have the holidays, they've got the great family, and still struggle with that sense of emptiness. Jim Carrey's got that quote that often floats around on Facebook with him looking kind of old and wise, where he says, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see it's not the answer. Many people realize when they reach this moment of happiness or comfort they've been striving for that it, that, that might feel good on some level, but it doesn't answer the, this ache of the soul for meaning. So because of that, another place or another kind of avenue a lot of people go down, I'd put under the kind of banner of humanism, which is this view of well, progress, that we as people can make the world a better place. And contributing to making the world a better place or leaving it in some way better than we found it Many people would say that's the meaning of life. To leave your mark in the world, leave it better than you found it, see something change. And you realize that a lot of us believe that this is what makes life meaningful because when you go to a funeral, the things that are spoken about in people's lives aren't how much money they had in their bank account or how well decorated their home was or, or where they traveled. It's about what's the impact they had on those around them? What's the impact they had on their family, on their community, in their workplaces? And so there's something that's obviously great and I think honorable in this desire to make the world a better place. If you can do something in your life to contribute to cancer research or alleviate poverty or be an Elon Musk who can bring along technological advancement to better the human race or even just in, in enriching culture through music or art or literature or planting trees or cleaning oceans, whatever it is, or a hundred or more other ways you could better this world, there's something, there's something motivating in that. And it feels good when you can make a difference. I'm a bit of a pessimist, and I, I kind of often think that things are getting worse. So a couple of years ago, I read a book called Factfulness, 10 Reasons We're Wrong About the World and Why Things Are Better Than You Think. So if you're a bit of a negative person, it's well worth a read because it just tells you how many things are going good, um, which is a nice little reminder. But just to, to realize things that, like in 1900, in 193 countries in this world, slavery was legal. Now it's only legal in three um, to know that in 
1986, there were 64,000 active nuclear warheads. That's actually been cut down to 15,000. In 1970, 28% of the world was undernourished. Now it's only 11%. And on the flip side, things are getting better. That in, in the early 1800s, 1% of the world got to live in a democracy, whereas now it's 56%. In 1980, only 58% of the world had safe water. Now it's 88%. So you can see it going on. You can see like, there are so many ways we make the world a better place. Surely that's what we've got to give our lives to. How satisfying to do that. And there's something good in this. We want to be part of something bigger. Jesus says, love your neighbor. So there's something that's, that's very even right within Christianity to this approach. But my question about this approach is, does this ultimately satisfy on its own in a world without God? And the ultimate problem with this approach is the one that is raised by nihilists that there are some significant limits around this in the long run. When you dig into the kind of stats of the world a little bit deeper, you can see that life expectancy is getting longer, but the exact same percent of people are still dying. 100% of people die. Life can be prolonged, but death cannot be avoided. And the inevitable death is the uncomfortable dampener to this view. So not only does one day everyone die, but one day the world ends. And the knowledge that we will all one day die is the worm at the core of the human condition. That if our framing of the meaning of life is around making a difference, in the long run, do we make any difference at all? The atheist philosopher Thomas Nagel writes, Even if you produce a great work of literature which continues to be read thousands of years from now, eventually the solar system will cool, or the universe will wind down and collapse and all trace of your effort will vanish. The problem is that although there are justifications for most things, big or small, that we do, within life, with, that we do within life, none of these explanations explain the point of your life as a whole. It wouldn't matter if you had never existed. And after you've gone out of existence, it won't matter that you did exist. Have a great week, guys. I'll just pray. <laughs> um, it's pretty dire, isn't it? It's pretty dark. It's some hard rationalist thinking. But it's unavoidable, isn't it, to some extent. In, in a closed universe, if this is all there is, just the physical, nothing more, no reason behind it, then you can make the world a better place. But in the end, it is going to end the same way it began, with a collection of particles floating in a vast nothingness. And if that's the case, then all of our efforts to make this world a better place are like building an elaborate sandcastle on the shore of an incoming tide. All of our efforts, big and small, will be washed away. And this view is becoming more and more common. And this is the third kind of answer to the meaning question. It's nihilism, which is to say there is no real meaning. In fact, it's maybe just a, the wrong question to ask. It's a silly question to ask what's the meaning of life. A dog doesn't ask what is my meaning. It just goes on being a dog. And maybe that's what we're meant to do as people. Just get on with it. Just keep on moving. Stephen Jay Gould, an evolutionary biologist, he answers the question of why we're here like this. He says, we are here because one odd group of fishes had a peculiar fin anatomy that could transform into legs for terrestrial creatures because the earth never froze entirely during an ice age because a small and tenacious species arising in Africa a quarter of a million years ago has managed so far to survive by hook and by crook. We may yearn for a higher answer, but none exists. There's no higher answer, we're an accident, a cosmic accident. And if that's the conclusion you come to, I, I think in the long run it can only lead you down one of two roads. 
It can lead you to apathy, which is just, look, don't take life too seriously. If we say, oh, this is a big, big mistake or this big unexplained thing, just don't stress, just get on with it, do what you want to do, but don't take life too seriously. I think this view in our um, uh, day and age is summed up, I think, most, most clearly, funnily enough, by Netflix's most popular cartoon, Rick and Morty, which is just season after season, an exploration of how a hard scientific nihilism interacts with the everyday navigation of relationships. And the philosophy is summed up in this poignant scene where the main character, Morty's sister, Summer, has just found out that she is an accident, that her parents didn't particularly want her. And as Morty goes to comfort his sister, this is what he says. He says, nobody exists on purpose, nobody belongs anywhere, everybody's going to die, so come watch TV. And it's, it's kind of funny, this kind of pairing of facts that, what do you do with that? Like, what do you do, if that's what you believe, well, watching TV is probably as good an answer as anything. And I think younger generations are buying into this idea more and more. We think, well, everything's just a joke anyway. So you can just make memes about anything. That was the main coping mechanism of, of young people over the last few years of COVID, was to make TikToks and memes to deal with it. Whereas previous generations were, were trying to, to make their mark on the world, and people now are just trying, to, just trying to cope, cope through laughter. And if nothing matters, if there is no meaning, then that makes a lot of sense. So just be apathetic. But the other road it can lead you down is dark than that. It's the road to despair. Because if you think on the reality that life is meaningless for too long, it doesn't lead to a positive feeling, does it? And I don't think it's a coincidence that depression and even suicide are on the rise when people are told this is how the world is. You have no meaning. You have no purpose. And so people find themselves like Tolstoy asking the question, is there any reason to live? But Tolstoy found an answer to this question, and his answer was found in God. And that's what I want to put forward today, is that all of these kind of proposed sources of meaning that we've just been through are all operating under the same assumption, which is that there is no personal God. There is no external source of meaning, no ultimate design or purpose or rationality to the universe. But if you allow for the possibility of a creator God you open up the potential of meaning. And this is what the Christian worldview says. This is what Christians believe. And in a part of the Bible that Jez just read to us before, the Apostle Paul lays out, I guess, this counter view to what many people are believing today. And so we're going to read that again in Colossians 1 from verse 15. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The, the truth that is, putting, that is put forward here is that outside of what we know and experience in this physical world, there is an invisible God, a God who made it, who made everything, that everything that we know and feel and touch and experience didn't just come to be for no reason, but it was made intentionally. There is a creator. And in doing so, he imparted this universe and everything that there is with a sense of meaning. And it says that this God has made all things for a reason. And I think it's the, the simplest 
the simplest, I guess, explanation of this um, in, in the Bible is just two words. He made everything for a reason. And the reason it gives is for him. For him. Now, my goal today isn't to prove the existence of God, but to point out if there is a God, the meaning question becomes a whole lot simpler. See, our normal process for exploring questions of meaning is to look inward. It's to try to work out for ourselves what we feel like the meaning for life is. What, what can we find for ourselves that's going to satisfy that urge within us? But if we are created, the question that we need to be asking isn't, what meaning can I give myself? But what is the purpose I was made for? I'm not much of an art type person. Um, if I look at a painting on a, on a wall, um, 99 times out of 100, it does nothing for me whatsoever. Um, if I look at some squiggly squares and colors and, or a weird sculpture at the MCA made out of garbage, I'm like, what's going on here? Um, and so I could stand looking at a piece of art, particularly like if you contemporary art, for a long time and, and not have any clue what it means. And I get that part of art is meant to be subjective and figuring out what it means for you and that kind of thing. But what I love when I go to an art gallery, when I get dragged along, is, uh, is when they've got those little plaques under the, under the art with, where the artist just says what it means. For me, that really just makes things a lot simpler. Like, oh, that's what he's doing. It's weird. I don't know why he's done it, but at least I can see what's going on. Because when an artist makes a work of art, even if they kind of hide it through it being bizarre, they are trying to communicate something. They're trying to evoke something, some kind of feeling or some kind of experience or to share some kind of knowledge or perspective. And that's what makes art different to an accident. If you're walking down the street and a couple of buckets of paint have been spilled across the, the sidewalk, you don't stop and stare and say, what does this mean? Because it doesn't mean anything. That's just not how it works. It's an accident. It's the wrong question. Maybe it means an apprentice is going to lose his job, something like that. But <laughs> it doesn't mean much more. But if the same paint has been arranged on a canvas intentionally, the question becomes valid. You can say, what does this mean? And there would be an answer to that question, even if it's not an obvious one. We often stand around guessing about what our life is about. But if there is one who made us, it's him that we need to turn to for answers. And the answer that the Colossians give is we are made for him, for himself. That's the answer to the big why, that God made us for him. And this for him gets fleshed out across the Bible. It's, it's actually rich with meaning. It means in, in one instance that we're made for reflecting him. One of the big ideas in, in the Bible is that every woman and every man is made in the image of God. That we have a purpose in, in reflecting aspects of uh, what God is like in creativity, in love, in compassion, in truth. But it also means for him in the sense that we are made for relationship with him that we've actually got the ability to have a relationship with our Creator, to know Him and to be known by Him and to be loved by Him. It also means for Him, in the sense of worshipping Him, that God made us to, to rightly recognize His worth and His goodness and to worship in response with our lives, with our thoughts, with our words. And knowing this purpose that we're each made with gives life meaning. And it's a meaning that can't be robbed by suffering because even if all of our comfort and pleasure is stripped away, we can find ways to grow in our knowledge of God. We can find ways to reflect what God is like to the world around us and we can worship him even in suffering. It's a meaning that isn't robbed by death 
that in God we've actually got a way to engage with the eternal because the relationship that God invites us into is an eternal relationship. It's a meaning that frees us from the apathy of everyday life because everything matters. How we, how we conduct ourselves in our relationships matter. Our work, what we do at work matters. In, in, in our interests and in our skills that we've been given, we can find outlets to image God, to love like God, to worship God, whether that's in planting trees or cooking or raising kids or playing guitar. And it's a meaning that frees us from ultimate despair because it, it says that we are not just lost freak accidents in a vast empty universe, but we are known. And all these ideas I'm aware are quite lofty and conceptual and maybe this is your first time in a church today and this is just really just raising more questions. Maybe you're still stuck on what I said 20 minutes ago, is there even a God? Like maybe that's the question you're still trying to work through. This is only true if God exists. And so I just want to get a little bit more concrete as we finish now. The passage that we just read starts by saying he is the image of the invisible God. And the he that that it's speaking about there is Jesus. Whereas I think often we think of God as a bit of an idea, something who's out there and invisible and distant. According to the Christian worldview, the way we can come to know God is through Jesus. That Jesus is God, but made knowable. Knowable as a person. And 2,000 years ago, Jesus physically walked on this earth. A historical human being. And he invited people to follow him and to know him and to have a relationship with him. In the beginning of one of the accounts of Jesus' life um, called the, the Gospel of Mark, uh, we see an account of Jesus calling people to himself. I just want to read that for you now. In Mark 1 verse 16. It says, As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and they followed him. When he'd gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. So Jesus would go around, he'd find ordinary people, in this instance fishermen, at other points it was people in finance, people in religious education, fighters, lawyers, and he would say to them, come and follow me. And they would. And we don't know exactly why. Maybe there was something intrinsically just appealing about Jesus. Maybe they'd heard about him and his teaching. Maybe they were just sick of fishing and, and bored and, and up for trying something new. Whatever the reason is, they, they, they follow him. And they begin to listen to him and to watch him and to learn from him. And what happens for these people who follow Jesus is they find in that process a meaning and a purpose that is undeniable. Sometime later in Jesus' ministry, as, as things take a turn and, things, and pressure and opposition rises, and it seems like people might want to start deserting Jesus, Jesus asks these same disciples a question. In John 6.67, Jesus says to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? And this is their response. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. In a world that is bereft of ultimate meaning, of, of, of a deep and satisfying answer to what life is and how to live it, Peter articulates that he has found in Jesus words of eternal life. That no matter how hard things got, he couldn't possibly leave. And there's an element of Peter's words that has rung true for me in my years following Jesus. Of just where else could I go? 
where else in the world, what other, what other worldview, what other place can you go to to find the possibility of knowing God and having the richness of meaning and purpose that comes with that? As you read through the accounts of Jesus' life and, and his death and his resurrection, you see that Jesus is the way to know God. That ultimately, despite the fact that each and every one of us has neglected our purpose of being made for God, we haven't imaged him, we haven't known him, we haven't worshipped him, that despite that, Jesus, in his death, opens up a way. And in knowing Jesus, we can restore the relationship that we were made for. And in my experience, this has just given life a, a rich meaning that, is just, that, is, that is, I can, I guess, hang my life on. The feeling that life is meaningless is, is, is a terrible feeling, but in knowing Jesus, life begins to start making sense. That in Jesus comes the knowledge that you're not an accident, that you aren't alone, that you are loved more than you could ever know. And in him, you can work out what life is about. And so my appeal to you guys today is, if you're someone who is just not really sure what you make of all this, you're not sure if you've got the answers that you need, or you're not sure if you even know there's a God or, or what meaning is, to maybe consider exploring what Jesus says about it. To explore whether or not Jesus has answers to some of these big questions. Even if it's a really big if for you, what could be more worthwhile than asking the question of where is meaning to be found? And seeing if, if like many others have throughout history, that Jesus has the answer that satisfies your soul. And so I'd encourage you over the next three weeks, we're going to be doing a similar thing to this, um, so come along each Sunday morning. But if, if maybe you're wanting a bit more kind of back and forth, a bit more conversation, a bit more exploring in, in conversation, discussion around a table, like you said, Alpha would be a great thing to consider signing up for. You've got the white cards on your seat. You could fill that in and to say, even if you're not sure you want to be there, it's a great way to get in touch and get some more information sent to you for that. But what we're going to do now is spend some time praying because it is good news that life has meaning. It is good news that we, that we can know God through Jesus. I'm going to be thanking him for that reality now. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you that, that we can see the image in Jesus of the invisible God. That the search for meaning isn't a futile one. That it isn't the case that we will never know what, what we are made for or why we're significant or even if we are. But in Jesus we can know you and we can be shown a way back to knowing you, to seeing you for who you are being able to see how worshipping you can fit into each and every part of our life. And Lord, I just want to ask for anyone here who is searching, who is searching for more answers, who is searching uh, to find something that they feel is missing. And I ask that you would show yourself to them. I ask that you would be making yourself known and helping each and every person in this room who, who needs answers have those answers so they can experience life to the full in you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.